0: begin, as all Irishmen do, with a few stories. Uh, Whiskey, too, yes, but uh, stories. The first story I guess I want to share with you is is the Job story, and if you're not familiar with the story of Job from the Bible, uh, it came about by a very strange uh, happenstance in the sense that Palestine was being invaded yet again by another group of people and that group was the Greeks. And it just so happened that the Greeks at that time were puzzling about why bad things sometimes happen to good people. The people of Palestine already had an idea of why bad things happen to good people. If bad things are happening to you, you are not a good person. God rewards his beloved with good things and if you are not a good person, God takes those things away. And so the the authors of the book of Job, with the Greek influence, tried to puzzle this out a little bit further. And if you don't know the story of Job, I'll go through it very, very quickly. Job was a good guy. He had lots of children, lots of wives, lots of camels, lots of sheep, lots of houses. He had everything he could possibly want. And God and the devil were in heaven shooting craps. (laughs) And God said, check out my, my friend Job down there. What a great guy, you know, he prays to me, he sacrifices to me, he talks about me, and the devil doesn't say much. So God finally says, you're a little bit quiet, is there something on your mind? No, 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 nothing, no. He said, no, come on, fess up. And he says, well, it's easy for Job to praise you, I mean, look at all the goodies he has all the things you've given him. Of course he prays you. I just wonder that um, if any of those things were taken away, I'm certain he would curse your name. And God says, oh really? Well, I know you're a betting man, let's go. And so they bet. And of course, God being God, takes away the children, the wives, the camels, everything. It's all gone. And Job's friends come to him and they say, wow, you must have really ticked off you-know-who because look at what did you do? He said, I haven't done anything. I'm blameless. So no, you must have done something. He said, no, no, I've done nothing. And eventually... Job is sitting on a dung heap. Now, if you don't know what a dung heap is, it's a big <laughs> pile of. Yeah. And so he's sitting there sprinkling ashes on his head and doing penance, but knows that he is blameless. And so when his friends come to him and say, Well, what are you going to do now? he says those very famous lines I know that one day I shall see God face to face, and I shall be justified. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This was an attempt in this book to try and understand what it is in our human condition that causes us suffering, and more importantly, What do we do when we've got to suffer? I was watching Stephen Colbert the other day, and he was doing a little shtick about God. And he says to God, who's up there somewhere in the flies, you know, and he says, "Um, You know, why did you almost kill me last year with that appendicitis? And God says, Oh, sorry, buddy. My, uh, my uh, fantasy football team was in the toilet and I was just in a bad mood that day. <laughs> Story number two. Story number three comes from Dr. Jordan Peterson. He talks about a time when he was um, dreaming But it was one of those dreams that you get sometimes, and I'm sure you've had them, where it feels so real it's almost like a vision. And in his vision he's in a huge stadium and the stadium is packed with people and they're all cheering and he is involved in a battle to the death with some dark malevolent power. And he says he can't really even see what the power is but he knows he is fighting with every fiber of his being to defeat this thing. And when he finally does, he looks up and he sees the face of his dad and behind his father's face he sees his grandfather and his great-grandfather and fathers back and back and back and back into antiquity until eventually he sees what he interprets to be the face of God. And he says, why have you done this to me? Why have you made me fight so hard? And God says, because I knew you could win. These are three very different pictures of God. And so I might as well ask the big question. Raise your hand if you have a problem with God. The word God. Okay. You're not alone by the way. The entire Centers for Spiritual Living organization apparently has problems with the word God because it's being stricken from all of our literature and being replaced. I'm here to, in a way, I hope, redeem the idea of God. And I say that purposely, the idea of God. Let me put it this way we have, each one of us, an opinion or a thought about this thing called God. And the point of departure for this talk was an interview that I saw at the Conference on Western Civilization. It was a forum of three speakers. Oz Guinness, who is a theologian, writer, and um, Social activist, I will say. John Anderson, who was the deputy prime minister of Australia some years back, in a very conservative government, I must say, and Ayan Hirsi Ali. And this is the woman that I want to focus on. Ayan Hirsi Ali is Somali, and a Muslim. And when she came to the West, she still retained her Muslim faith. But she was deeply troubled by the events of 9-11. And she was even more troubled when she heard Osama bin Laden quoting the Quran. And she decided that she would go into the, the Quran and look up the quotes to see if they were there at the same time knowing that they would be and not wanting to find them. When she found them, she was so disillusioned, she left the Muslim faith and she made friends with Christopher Hitchens who convinced her that the path to wisdom was in atheism. And so she became a very, very active atheist In this interview, she said, for a number of years now, I have been, and we have all been, engaged in one of the most pointless conversations that we could have. One of the most boring and useless arguments that one could possibly engage in. And that argument is, does God exist, is there a God, or is there not a God? She said, we would be much better served if we sat down and talked about this God that we believe in. And so that gave rise to the title of this talk, which is, what does your God do for a living? She was very clear what her God did for a living. It was laid out in the Quran. She didn't feel really good about it, but she knew, according to the faith, what her purpose was as outlined in the Quran. Our life, Abraham Maslow says in his hierarchy of, of needs, at the pinnacle is self actualization, meaning. We in the West, whether you like the idea of God or not, we in the West find our meaning in every aspect of our society, in our laws, in our government. We find our meaning in the Judeo-Christian tradition and to not know about that or to try and push it away as if it's not a part of us lops off the entire top of the pyramid. It's said that Napoleon, when he was in Egypt, used the pyramids and the Sphinx for target practice. And I thought there's an interesting symbolism there, that this short, obsessed man who wanted to rule the world should try and lop off the top of the pyramid. But what's left, if you take off self-actualization, if you take out meaning, morality, creativity, spontaneity, acceptance, purpose, and inner potential, which is all part of the top of the pyramid and is all related to our belief system and our values. If you take that off, you're left with self-esteem, confidence, achievement, respect of others, and the need to be a unique individual. Does any of that ring true for what we as a society are living right now. The cult of personality, the politics of personality, a world where we don't so much care about other people as what they say, who they are, how they dress, what they look like, where we have very, in a very real way began begun to look at the world as if there is no top to the period to the pyramid as if there is no meaning the problem we seem to have with god comes out of our desire for certainty and god is uncertain for sure if you're looking for and i speak from experience If you're looking for a more uncertain life (laughs) you couldn't do it better than by looking for God. God is not a safe place. And the reason why God is not a safe place is because it is a call out of safety. What is known into the deep unknown. Our desire to find certainty propels us to define God and then approve of our definition of God and disapprove of everybody else's definition of God. Or worse, dispense with God entirely. It is the desire to be certain. that drives the idea that we have of God. So let me say it this way. If you feel uncomfortable with God, you are actually uncomfortable with your idea of God. You're uncomfortable with the opinion you have about God. And that is something that people have made up and that we have expanded on or altered to fit our understanding. God is a symbol. God is a symbol. God is not a sign, like the sign that says Vancouver 16 kilometers or tomatoes 5.99 a kilo. Those signs are definitive. They are informational. But God is a symbol. And a symbol is not an equation like those signs. A symbol is not equals. It is an approximation. It is an equivalence. God is an equivalence that points towards something. But God is not the end of the journey. As a matter of fact, that finger pointing at the moon, which is the name God, that moon reflects back to us. Some of us, and I was a Catholic monk for a number of years, I was real caught up with the the symbol, with the finger pointing at the moon, Equivalence is an approach to something. It's a version of it. It's a tendency to. the history of God, as we know it is not the history of God. and is certainly not a definition of God. But it is rather the history of the search for God, our spiritual path through all of its iterations in the West is the history of the search for something that we identify as the ultimate other. Whitman, in Leaves of Grass, says that he finds a letter from God strewn about and leaves them there so that others may find them. He says specifically, I find letters from God dropped in the street and everyone is signed by God's name and I leave them where they are for I know that wheresoever I go others will punctually come forever and forever. To understand that the world we live in is the face of God, is the body of God. And we are it. And that being the face of God, being the expression of God, is our purpose. And by looking at the world and looking at one another, we see the face of God. I had a, a challenging experience this week. I um, I work as a chaplain, uh, sometimes directly with hospice, but a lot of times just being referred to families who have had a death or who are grieving, and so on. And I got called by one of the funeral homes to do a um, to preside at a funeral for a family. <coughs> um, the son had died of a fentanyl overdose um, just before Christmas. He was in his 30s. Seven years prior to his death, his brother, his older brother had died of a fentanyl overdose. And seven years prior to that, their older brother had been shot to death in his home in a a police situation gone bad. The man who I was talking to and planning with had lost all three of his sons. I I I can't even imagine what that would be like for a parent. And his first question to me was Are my sons together? And I said, absolutely. And are they happy? I said, yes, they are. Now, how can I say that with conviction? Because all the stories that I know about the God that is vengeful or the God that is punishing or the... You know, I often say, uh, there's two schools of thought in Catholicism. One of them is, you have to be really lucky to get to heaven. (laughs) And the other one is, you have to be really unlucky to go to the other place. (laughs) Well, you can see how those two opposing things, right? Well, again, it's an attempt to find some certainty. But neither of them really describe God. They just describe some, some guy's idea about God. So I said, yes, they're fine, they're happy, they're together. I work with people who are dying all the time. And guess what? Dying seems to be continuing to keep happening. And it doesn't look like there's any end in sight. And so people say to me, how do you continue to do that work? It must be terrible, it must be awful. And yes, it's difficult sometimes, like it was this week. But it is probably among the most rewarding work I've ever done. And here's where I come back to what this is all about. Relieving suffering, keeping evil at bay, contributing a little bit to make the world a better place it puts us in touch with the fact that we are more than we usually think we are. It takes us out of that self-esteem realm and takes us up into the place of meaning and value. There were moments this week where I was peering into the darkness and not knowing what I was going to say at this funeral for this family and all these people who were mourning the loss of this, the latest boy in the family. But if we live in that top place where God, as it is, is, if we peer as deeply as possible into it, a light appears. And that light that appears is unquenchable. It is real. It's a bit of a surprise, but it's a relief. Eastern mysticism of the Eastern Orthodox Church calls God stillness silence emptiness that is filled with light. We're all of us good. We're all of us Good. You hear me say that? But our goodness is not l- like a diamond, the hardest thing on known to man, right? Our goodness is like a plant, it's tender, it's vulnerable. It's easily broken but it's resilient. Events like death, like the one I was dealing with this week, they shake us to our very core. They stomp on whatever nobility we have. They challenge our resilience. They make us doubt. They make us doubt the good, the true, and the beautiful of life. But like that blade of grass that pushes its way up through the concrete, if we keep going, if we keep going, Keep trying to t- have malevolence kept at bay, confronting evil and death, comforting those who are bereft, encouraging those who are afraid. We find a strength and a beauty in ourselves by doing that, by confronting as Jordan Peterson did in his vision, the horrible foe, and knowing that we can win. We step into the darkness. We step in, and we find the light that is always there. There is a call It's in every single one of us. It's why we came to the planet. And the call is to the strength that is at the core of our life, to stand up as a witness to life itself, to stand up as a witness to the life of those around you, whoever they are, wherever they are. So this brings me back to what does your God do for a living? I can only speak about mind. But I encourage you to follow my lead and think about this God that is the core, center and purpose of your being. And ask What is it doing through me? The call is clearly there. People are picking it up all the time. And you are no different and I am no different than those who step out with nobility and strength. I want to conclude by introducing the song that Nathan is going to do. <laughs> Magic. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I asked him specifically to do this song, and uh, it's, it's a Christian song, and it's pretty Christian, to be honest. And at the same time, it speaks to the universality of what I've been talking about as the search for meaning. And I'll finish with this quote from Jordan Peterson. To understand that you are morally obliged under terrible circumstances to manifest strength in the face of adversity is to indicate to yourself first and perhaps to others that there is something in you of sufficient grandeur and strength to face the very worst and win. So ends the lesson and so it is. Namaste.